brought to you with the natural goodness of Viridian Nutrition, available at Browns. I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Today, I'm joined by another household name. A journalist, a presenter, a podcaster, a writer, and a very knowledgeable and educated gentleman. Mark has graced our TVs and our homes through his involvement with Sharabank, but he has also written children's books, a musical, written and composed Maltese songs, acted in a range of stage productions, and he's written and produced TV documentaries and so much more. But Mark Lawrence Zamit took us all by surprise last August when he announced he will stop presenting the Wednesday discussion show Liberfost Jimma due to excessive interference from PBS, stating, in recent months, I faced a lot of interference from PBS, which didn't leave me free to work according to my journalistic principles, and I was hindering my loyalty towards my own audience. Zamit said on Facebook, I therefore took the decision to stop presenting this program. My loyalty was, is, and remains to the people and not to political powers. But Mark's departure from PBS gave him the opportunity to rise to new heights with the Times of Malta and the freedom of speech to speak out against the issues he feels are holding Malta back. Quoting an interview with John Malia, I can see a society that's realizing that this is all screwed up, where those who screw others succeed and those who don't get screwed themselves. Welcome, Mark. Mark, wow! I'm not sure with my performance here today, I'll be able to live up to that introduction. That's you, <laughs> no, but uh, That is you! That's, that's me in different parts of my life. That so, but is, yes, yes, that, those, are, uh, uh, those are things I did, I said, yes, yes, you're right, you're a brilliant researcher. Thank you very much. It's all on Google. <laughs> I research. I have to say, I was fascinated by by the fact that you've written uh, children's books, amongst other things. And we'll come back to that uh, in just a few minutes. But it, did I miss anything? Because that is a massive introduction, as you said. But it's a massive career. No, I don't think so. The only thing you didn't say is that I'm a godzitten. I think everybody says that. But that's well, that's. I'm a Godzitten. But still, I like to say it because I love it. I love that part of myself, that part of my identity. Why? Yes, Why? Why? Because it's different. It's always been that and my hair have always been really, really beautiful conversation starters and friendship starters. I, I almost never small talk about the weather because I don't need to. Because I, I always small talk about my hair, which is not small talk at all. With people I don't know, and you, and, and about people who, and about Gozo, because whenever I meet someone new who is Maltese, they'll go, you know, my great great aunt is from Gozo. You must know her. And then we're we're rambling on about Gozo and the, the beautiful island and stuff like that. And then before you know, before you know it, we're friends. So those two things are my friendship starters. I love I love that about myself. I did nothing. I, I just let my hair grow out of control, and I just was born on the island by chance. So none of that is, 
I have no merit in that, but still, I use it to make friends. I think that's brilliant. I have to say, on the Gozo point, when I've interviewed the travellers, the travellers who are from Gozo are very particular about mentioning that they're from Gozo. Why is that so important to who you are? Because bear in mind, I'm not from the Maltese Islands. As far as I'm concerned, there's Malta, who is the big island, and there's Gozo, that is a smaller, green, and slightly prettier. Sorry I didn't say that, but it's part of the, the archipelago of five islands. So far. Gozo is slightly prettier so far. Because it's unique. There are 60 million Italian people. There are 300 million American people. But there are only half a million Maltese and only 28,000 Godzitten people. So it Ah, makes you feel more unique. Now I'm seeing. Yes, it makes you feel like I could have been born in a way more diluted community than than Gozo. Mark, you're saying that you're a bit special. I say that Gozo is special. (laughs) But uh, now that I listen to myself out loud, yes, it's true. (laughs) Listen, I've just listed a pretty stunning and incredible career. Uh, what has been the highlight of your career to date? What has been the point that you're just like, that was brilliant? I genuinely think that none of the things that I did is brilliant. And, and I'm not saying this to be humble or, or, or to fish for compliments. Or, or This is not fake modesty. I truly believe this. I look at what other people have done in the media and outside of the media. And I'm nothing compared to them. But if I had to pick one interview, it would be... The interview I did with Cardinal Mario Grech. This is something else I always speak about in public. I don't know why I do it. But I I really used to want to be a priest when I was young. We had a basement at home. We still have a basement at home. And I converted, I transformed one of the rooms in my basement as a church, as a small chapel, where I used to role play as a priest, saying mass. And during this time when I really wanted to become a priest, Mario Grech became Bishop of Gozo. And that is when I saw him on TV and said, I want to be bishop. And one day I went up to him. He was somewhere in public and I just went up to him and just started speaking to him. And we kind of became friends. On on one occasion, he came to listen to my mass at home. It was hilarious. Yes, 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 yes. yes. You can't make this stuff up. Hang on a second, hang on a second. No, no, no. Were you nervous? You've got your role model coming to you delivering mass. What's worse than that is that I had seen him the weekend before. It was in April, I believe. And for me, you know, the, the chapel was dedicated to my, to my St. Mark and St. Lawrence, which are my names. So it was April 25th, the, the, this the is Feast the of St. Mark. in your basement? Yes, chapel in my basement. It's in a garage. Okay. Yes. Back then he was just a bishop. He had just, he had just became a bishop. I had uh, met him the weekend before. I had this big mass at home because it was the, the, you know, the, the, the big celebration of the mass. At the Can fe- I the feast mass. how old you were? 13, 14, okay, okay, something okay. like that. I love this story. This is the best. And then, I, I think I've never said this, and then I met him the weekend before and he said, so you still do that? You still say mass? And I said, of course, of course. I, and and I, I think between the lines, I said something along the lines of, I want to be like you. I want to become bishop one day. And then he said, when is your next big mass? And I said, it's next week at St. Mark. And he said, you know what? I might come around. And then we didn't speak about it at all again. And I said, okay, big people say this to children just so that they don't feel bad. You know, children, children would love to hear that. And I never thought he'd come. So I started the mass without him. There was nobody there. Mom and dad would come down just to check that I didn't, I, I'm not lighting the house on fire with all the candles and incense. And he just knocked on the door 
and just came in halfway through the door and, and I gave him communion and all that stuff. Looking back, it was hilarious, but it meant so much to me back then. Yes, yes. I, I, I'm literally jaw-dropped at this yes, whole... Yes, yes, yes. The whole episode and the fact that he just turned up. Yes, yes, he just turned up driving his own car, I, how, I remember. How did he know where you lived? Well, goes over, but knows each okay, other, yeah. so everybody okay, really enough. knows yeah, where we live. Bang on that. I, I'm not sure if he had called my mother and father before without telling me, and he just appeared in the door halfway through mass. I remember exactly at which point I was, and I had to carry on. Of course, then I was really nervous, of course. Of course you but were. But it was a massive experience. For someone like me who had that dream, I mean, it's like... So what happened to the dream of being a priest? that really cemented the dream, that experience really cemented the dream. I had started the first part of studies, which was, wasn't exactly the seminary, it wasn't exactly the course for priesthood, but you know, it's like a pre-kinder for priests. So it's like the first part of the course. I did that and I was on the verge of applying to go in. And then I turned 18 and said, listen, I would love to see what Malta offers because I've never been I had been to Malta on holiday on weekend breaks and during field trips but I know I've I'd never lived in Malta so I said I would love to see what Malta offers I should go to university first and then I'll do a course I graduate and I come back and then become a priest I came to Malta I studied communications media and the Maltese and Maltese language and literature and then by the end of it I realized that my ambition wasn't really to be a priest but one, I, I was really interested in, in other people's stories. And, you know, the church and priesthood is all about that, in my opinion. But two, I was really a diva. I mean, I, I really, for me, it was all a show. It was all theater. I was way into theater when I was young. So, so, so then I realized, listen, I could go into journalism and it would be kind of the same thing. Because I don't think it's a vocation, really. It's, it's, it's my ambition, to, you know, to, to, to show off in a way. So I coupled the love for stories and people that I got from the church with journalism, and I got into journalism uh, right after I graduated. Never looked back. Today I'm really close to the church, still very close to the church. I help them a lot. I'm in a lot of projects with the church, but still. I, I don't want to become a priest anymore, but not because I don't like it. I, I, I love the vocation. It's just that I don't feel it's for me. I would love to have a family now. Mark, I have to say, that is the most unexpected story I think I've ever had in about one and a half thousand interviews. I was not uh, so, expecting so, but, but that I, at I all. I didn't answer your question. So no. then, sorry, because the, sorry, the original question was... Um, what was the highlight of your career, yes, I think, yes. was? So the original question was, so when he became cardinal, I called him. And we you said, friends. you remember when I did mass? Yes, do you remember that? And he said, yes, of course I do. And said, listen, would you like me to come over there and we'll film you in your new role, in your new job? I, I knew he's really high. He has a huge responsibility in, the, in, responsibility in the church. He's high up. I mean, when we went there and we interviewed, this is no, I don't think it's a secret. Uh, he, he'd mind me sharing, but we'd be filming. And he'd say, this was a year ago, shortly after I became cardinal. And he'd say, listen, I need to leave. And I would say, what happened? I need to leave because I have an urgent meeting. And I would say, is it the Pope? And he'd go, I can't tell you. But, and he'd just vanish. 
and we'll just wait there knowing that probably he, he's meeting with the Pope to discuss something very important and then comes back and continues filming. He was re a real sport about it. I'm, 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 I can't say for sure it was the Pope, but when I asked him, because he's really coy you, you, about... You're about uh, yes. You fill in the gaps. Yes, yes, I filled in the gaps. It was definitely yes, the Pope. Yes. yes, so I said, is it the Pope? He said, I can't tell you, <laughs> but I need to leave now. And, and he's, really, he's really nice about it because when, when you think about the position he had, the responsibility he has, and how accommodating he was with me, you know, this this young man from Malta trying to do a television program for a country which is insignificant in the middle of nowhere, kind of, kind of, for me it was really big. And so the interaction we had during the interview wasn't the interaction of a journalist with a cardinal, it was really the interaction of a boy and a bishop who were friends and one of them became cardinal, the other became journalist and now they're, they're reminiscing almost on what they on what they went through. It was really nice. And people could see that we, we had a relationship. I'm utterly captivated by that story. I, I admire him a lot for that because, because he was really nice to me over the years and not just now. Leads nicely onto my next question because you are obviously having originally pursued a career as a priest and in the church. You obviously are a man of principles. So you know what question I'm coming to ne next because huge respect for the move that you made last year. It takes balls to walk away from a very popular TV show and speak out uh, about a national station because you didn't agree with the principles. Do you have any regrets? No. I love TV and I think about it almost every day. Still, but I don't have any regrets. I still believe I could go back to TV somewhere, somehow, someday, but no, I don't. Can you talk about that decision at all? I mean, was it a difficult decision to make? Because you yes. suddenly, I, I've followed you for a long time and suddenly I saw, good grief, what happened? Yes, I, I, I can talk about it in the sense that, I mean, I had a dream to become a priest, but then when that, when that fa faded away and I went into journalism, you know, the dream for every journalist is to have a primetime talk show on national TV. Th that was the dream. And I got to the dream after seven or eight years working for Sharaban. Mm. I got that. I had a TV show. It was there. I had people working for the show. We were a team. We loved it. It was very stressful, but I mean, we did it. It was, the, it was two surveys in a row. Um, acknowledged it as the most popular and most favorite discussion show in the country. So I had it all. But I could feel it. I'm still very proud and I'm still very grateful for all the work we did back at the company I used to work for and the company was was really helpful helpful to me. But the thing is, but the thing is I could sense that the way that the station was communicating with us over the, the show because because you need to tell the station what you're doing and that's fine. We should do that because the station is giving you the airtime and the station needs to know what you're doing. So if you're breaking laws, if you're acting unethical, the station needs to stop you because it has responsibility. So I got that. But when we used to lie, you know, to inform them of our plans for the program, they used to give reasons for not inviting people or not discussing subjects that were out of ethical or legal reasoning. And I started to feel that this was motivated politically by other reasons. And it, it, became, it became difficult value-wise to work there even though it seems like the decision to leave the, the show was ballsy, like you say, 
I think there's still a selfish element to it because I, I think I would have, I wouldn't have been comfortable working in that in that environment. So for me, I got out of a of a very uncomfortable situation. I could have stayed there in a very convenient way. I could have done irrelevant programs for weeks on end. I can do those, but I don't want to, because I I think people are paying for a station that should be loyal to them and to no one else. And you just mentioned, of course, your integrity, because I think but for a lot of people watching a show like yours, you would know that this was puppeteering. You would know that this had been maneuvered into a maybe even political situation or or avoiding topics because you, there's just something that sits uncomfortably. And, and of course, that's down, that brings your integrity into question. We never bowed down to anything we didn't like. And the station was, was quite over demands. The station was, well, we, had, we argue a lot, but that's what you do in every station, in every company, in every situation. We argued a lot and I never felt that we had to do something we didn't want to. I always did all the shows I wanted to do. I always um, invited all the people I wanted to invite. So, so, so it's, not, it's not like I had to bow down to something, but the, the job in itself is already, uh, has, uh, already has a lot of pressure in it. Mm. You're constantly dealing with high-profile people, with people who are in a lot of trouble, with a-holes, with politicians, not necessarily in that order, and some of them, are, you know, some people share more than one of those titles, and and there is a lot of controversy surrounding these kind of shows. So there's a lot, there's a lot of pressure and stress just to do your job right, to be loyal to the people. It's really hard to do that, but then, over and above that, to have that sort of, oh no, we shouldn't be doing this. We don't agree with this. No, no, to have that over and above all of this, it was too much. It's not worth it. I may come back sometime if any station wants me. Because I love TV. I love TV. I'm in love with the dying medium. Broadcast is not dying, though. No, broadcast is not. Because people still watch live shows. Live TV is for live events nowadays. But I don't think it's for documentaries anymore or for general discussion shows anymore. Because Netflix is full of those. And they're way better than what any Maltese producer can produce with our budgets. Your career as a journalist as a journalist doing what you've done on television, but also now as a journalist with Times of Malta and all of the other roles that you've had, really has enabled you to have a 360 vision of Malta that few of us have. You've just mentioned there's people that you've interviewed, there's people that you've met, there's people that you've talked to that I personally would not have necessarily access to. And the rest of us also get to pick and choose what we see and absorb. So whether we're going to see Netflix and something that's really comfortable or whether we're actually going to absorb what's happening in the world. But as a journalist, you're right there on the front line. You're seeing it, you're reporting it, you're absorbing it and you're feeling it. Now, you mentioned in your podcast with John that success in Malta has depended on screwing other people. Is this, is this really what you're seeing? Can you give me a layman's example? What is really happening in Malta? You are the one who's on the front line. I don't believe that's true. So I said, people are starting to believe that the only way to succeed is to screw up other people. And if you don't do that, people will screw up you. I don't believe that's true. I believe real success comes from integrity, principles, and values. But there's a problem with that. If enough people believe that lie, it will become true. 
If enough people believe the perception that you need to screw up people, then really and truly the country becomes one whole dump of people screwing up each other. Is this what's happening? We're not there yet. No. I don't agree with people saying it's become a North Korea. No, it's not North Korea. No, in North Korea, we wouldn't be having this discussion. I wouldn't be speaking like I'm speaking now about the state and the government. No, it's not. Are we on the way there? Yes, if we're not really cautious. Of course we are. Of course we are. Because it's too big of, of, of a margin of votes between the parties. 47,000, 40, 50,000 votes is way too much for democracy to function the way it should. Because what that does is it gives the governing party you know, a license to do everything, even a license to kill if you want. So what I'm, what I'm st really starting to worry is that pe people are increasingly believing this. And it's not true. It's really not true. But, but my hope is that deep down, everybody is a good person. I don't believe in bad people. I believe in good people who do bad things. That's not to say that there is no evil. I believe that evil exists, but I don't believe that evil people exist. I really, really distinguish between the two. Because, I, because the people who changed me the most on my job weren't the politicians or the, 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 the people with really top, the top jobs, but the people who are convicted criminals or seen by society as criminals. So I've met all these, these people who over the years, I mean, I do it almost every month, every two months. You know, you meet people in prison, people who have really committed the worst crimes. And I, so I don't see evil in them. I see something that went terribly wrong in their life. Now, I'm not saying that that justifies what they did, never ever, but it explains it. And I see in criminals a lot of normal people who had horrible childhoods, who were subjected to abuse, to trauma. And I know this sounds cliche, but cliches are cliches for a reason, because, because they've been repeated so many times, because they're true. And I really believe this is true. The problem we have in our country is that we have too many good people who do bad things. But that's fine. So, so, but deep down, people are good. And that's why I, I really have hope in Malta. I really have hope in the Maltese people. And even those people who screw up other people just so that they succeed, they're good down, deep down. It's not because they hate people that they do that. It's because they're afraid. The church has this really, really nice quote. The opposite of love is not hate. It is fear. If, if I walk out the door now and see someone overdosed on, on the ground and I don't help him, it's not because I hate him. I don't hate him. It's because I fear that when the police come, I, they, they think I'm an accomplice. They think I was doing drugs with him. It, I don't help immigrants, not because I don't hate, I don't love them. It's not because I hate them, but because I fear that they might take my children's job, that they might rape my daughter. So it's all about, not about hate, and that's so much, that's already a step in the right direction. So for me, this is all a perception that if you screw someone up, you succeed. We need to take that out of our heads. And unfortunately, it's not getting out of our heads. I've been here 17 years. It resonated with me because I have seen that attitude from the very top to now the man on the street. The, the problem is that it's at the very top. I really believe in leadership. For me, leadership is the, one of the most important things you, you should have in a democracy. A leader that, that, that has really, really 
clear values. For me, the fact that the government is not clear on his stand on immigration is creating this sort of nonchalance towards black people, you know, leaving a black man on, on, on the pavement, you know, shooting a black man. I mean, this is the country that shot a black man and threw, threw out another one on, on the pavement. And to me, I'm not saying that the government or Robert Abela did this, but a leader who's not clear on, on immigration, such as this government, for me, the government is not clear on immigration. You know, it, 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 there are constant reports of the government asking boats to, to, not, to not bear to Malta with immigrants. And for me, this is, that, that is very concerning because people in the city say, listen, if the big man does that, I can do that. For me, the government is just like a family. If you see your father screwing up and not, and not suffering any consequences, you screw up. And so what's the answer, Mark? Because you're identifying the is we need fundamental problems. We need bold leaders. We need leaders who are not afraid to say stuff that people don't, that don't like. But there's a way to say, there's a way to communicate unpopular ideas with people, and we need to do that. In my opinion, none of the leaders we have so far, right now in Malta, can do that. The best one of them, in my opinion, is the Archbishop. The best leader we have so far. Even then, I have a problem with the church, because all this fuss about gay, you know, this homophobia thing with the church. That's the church's fault, because the church, again, has never, has never took a clear stance on homosexuality. There's all this talk about God loves you, and you were born like this, and we're sorry if we're hurting you, and if some of our priests are hurting you, we're sorry we didn't mean it, but then you can't come, you know, you can't be in a relationship, you can't have sex with a man if you're a man, or with a woman if you're a woman, you can't get married. It's still, in, it's still ingrained in us, in the Catholic doctrine. It's still in the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is like the, the Catholic manifesto for, for Christians. So no, the church is still homophobic. The church still hasn't taken clear stances on, on homosexuality. And that's why every so often there's this controversy around the church and, homopho and homophobia. You won't hear a, a priest speaking against, against black people, for example, because the church is really clear on black people and immigration. We want immigrants and we want to integrate with them. You won't hear a priest speaking against uh, people with disability, for example, because the church is really clear on that with words and actions. It has Dartal Providenza as well for that. So when a leader takes a clear stance, there, there, there's no confusion about what the people on the ground are doing. Explain to me, you just brought up this issue of homophobia. It's always occurred to me that here in Malta, we have the most progressive laws towards gay communities, LGBTQI plus communities. The laws were there, the gay marriages come in, and yet the church, who is also a fundamental power in Malta, is against it. That, that must cause incredible conflict, not just within society, but also within people's minds. Which one do you believe? I'm one of those people because I'm a I would like to believe that I'm a devout Catholic. So for me, I'm really caught up in my head about this. How can we understand and accept, as I do, that gay people were born gay, that they, have, they, they did nothing wrong, and that God loves them? Because, if, I mean, if, if you're Catholic, you believe that God created everybody, including gays. And then, so, so if they're exactly like everybody else, how is their love not exactly like everybody else's? So for me, I'm increasingly starting to believe that the church, that is where the church should go. Uh, towards a theological idea that, that homosexuality, even though from the outside it seems unnatural, 
because you know a family uh, babies can only come from a man and a woman the church i think in my opinion should go towards the idea the theological idea that homosexuality is also part of god's plan and just like the many other things we can't understand about god homosexuality is another thing we can't truly understand but we'll go we'll go with it because we believe that god is the perfect being that has created everything perfectly then it doesn't make sense not to let homosexual people get married to believe that they can that their love can be somewhat less valuable than other people's love i can't get that and i'm really baffled about that as a catholic eh? i love the way that you've explained all of these issues and you brought these issues to life and you've explained the conflict within malta you've also mentioned what is needed and one of my big questions was mark what do we need here in malta and you said leadership Yes. You've also said there is nobody to step into that position. Do you really believe there's nobody in Malta who could lead this country out of the season that we find ourselves in? I believe there is. We just don't know about her or about him yet. They're there. She's there or he's there. But maybe they're in a garage somewhere or maybe they're still thinking about it or maybe they're still on a, on a bench at school or in university. They'll come out, hopefully. I, I really have hope for humanity. I'm filled with hope for humanity. And you're filled with hope for Malta, I assume. Yes, and, and this is not to say that our current leaders aren't doing a good job. They are. It's just that for me, they're not addressing the most pressing issues right now. For me, one of the most pressing issues is that people aren't as happy and healthy mentally as they thought they would be when they make more money as they were promised they would. It's been a turbulent, I want to say 12 months, but it's actually probably been more than that. And this is without the pandemic. Let's put the pandemic aside for one second. But we have been in Malta through very turbulent times, whether it be started with the death of Daphne Caruana Glitzia. Then we've seen, I recall last year, every single week there was some politician who'd been found guilty of uh, or, or some misdemeanor or, or some crime or, or something that meant that they couldn't continue to every week and it was exhausting it was all exhausting watching this and then of course then we ended up with the gray listing i asked this question to uh, herman greg i asked exactly the same question have we reached a point of no return you said that there's hope for malta but we passed a tipping point how do we come back from where we are right now are we just not actually in a hole at all are we still doing fine i don't think we're doing fine but i don't think this is a point of no return i don't think there's i don't think there's ever a point of no return for a democratic society because i truly believe that people are genuinely good people people are genuinely good and all we have to do is, and this is really hard, but this is why we need a leader to motivate us and inspire, that, inspire us to do this, to look into our own selves, find our, our good, and get it out and give it to someone else. This is really hard. This is why I'm not in politics. This is why I'm speaking about it. But if I could do this, I would do it. This is what I believe Malta needs, a leader that inspires people to give themselves to other people. Because when you give yourself to other people, that's where you're really happy. That's where we're really, um, that's where we're really a community of love 
and hope. And that's when we're really the generous island, the generous nation we would like to believe we are. And this is going to be the starting point to solve some of the issues or all of the issues that Malta is facing. Most of us, maybe including myself, we lack something to live for. We lack something to live for. Mark, this has been the most unexpected, surprising and delightful interview. I want to ask you one last question. Yes. What does your future look like? I have no idea. I hope there is a future. I don't really like to think about the future. Right now I'm trying to do my job the best way that I can, hoping that this way the future will take care of itself. Mark Lawrence Zamit, you have been a delight, a surprise and an incredible guest on the interviewer. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you so very much. much. It was a delight for me. Thank you.